My name is Darren, and this is part 35 of Revelation. Isn't that crazy? I had no idea what I was getting into when I started this, uh, this series, totally intimidated. And uh, have y'all noticed lately everybody's been talking about the apocalypse like there's no tomorrow? Dad joke calendar. I've been trying to work that in all series. So there, uh, the question today is, how does the Bible end? How does the book of Revelation end? That's what we're, we're going to talk about today. Uh, it ends with an invitation. We'll end our service with an invitation. We do every week. But the Bible ends with an invitation that's not just to the lost, it's to all people. And it's to come. It's to come and have your thirst quenched. Not your thirst in your mouth, but your thirst in your soul. That sounds pretty important, doesn't it? So we're going to talk about that today. If you'll turn to Isaiah 55 real quick, I want you to look at the first verse there as I tell this story. So um, there was an invitation. When I was in seminary, Anita and I were in seminary with two of our four girls at the time, and what they did for the seminary students there was amazing. What they would do is they would, um, they would open up the gym and they would have people from all the local churches would bring Christmas gifts for children, toys. And they'd fill this gymnasium up with tables full of toys. And then seminary students could come and they would get basically Monopoly money and they could go in and buy toys for their kids. Because seminary students are just a notch more poor than college students, if you can imagine, because they usually have kids in tow. And so they're scraping by. So Isaiah 55 speaks to this, not the, the toys, but the, the buying for free in verse 1. And I want to read that to you because it speaks to what this, this invitation is all about. It says this. Isaiah is writing, remember now, Isaiah was around six, 700 BC, and this is what he writes in verse one. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. There's a dignity in being able to go and buy gifts for your children at Christmas when you're a seminary student and you don't have any money. There's a dignity in the, the ability to go and buy something instead of just have it handed to you. That's part of the thinking behind how they did that. And I don't know that it's so different than what God is saying to us there in Isaiah 55. There's an invitation here, and it's not just for folks that don't know the Lord Jesus, okay? Because let's just all admit it right now, we could all enter a 12-step program and say, I am, I am a recovering unbeliever, aren't we? Aren't we all struggling to believe God? We might say, I believe this, and I've got great convictions about this, but then there's another part of God's word. We're not so sure we're in on. We might say we're in on it, but if you watched how we live, you might cause people to wonder, do you really believe that he'll open the windows of heaven? Do you really believe that he will, if you cast all your cares for you, he will care for you? Do you really believe? That's really the essence of what we're wrestling with here in the book of Revelation and in the Bible. What do you really believe and does your life reflect that belief? So with that, 
want to jump in. But before we get to Revelation 22, I want to do something that I think will help us look at the end a little better, and that is go back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, just briefly. I want to read what we looked at last week again for a different reason. I know for me, I typically try to make my faith more about my effort and not enough about God's effort. But at the end of the day, I have very, very little to do with ha- what happens in my heart and my mind. But I have an important part, right? I have to take responsibility for my actions and my faith. I have to own it. But God does the heavy lifting. And God is the one who has been at work and working way before we ever thought about responding to his work. Look at this. And I'm just going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read through 9. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. Ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now watch this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord. God, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? God is looking for you. But God's not looking for you as if he doesn't know where you are. Okay, let's be clear. He's omniscient. He knows not, everything, not only everything that's happening now, but everything that's ever happened, everything that will ever happen. He knows what we think that never gets out. We, he knows where you are. He sees you. And he knows when you're trying to hide. And isn't that what we do when we don't believe? We are hiding. We do not want him to know what's in the deep, dark crevices of our hearts but he already knows. And notice what he's doing in the midst of that knowledge. He's pursuing you. He's coming for you in a good way. He knows you're in dark places. And he is the bright morning star that comes on the horizon at the darkest part of the night to say, I am tugging the dawn with me and that sun is going to come up again today. And Jesus is that bright morning star who is bringing the kingdom of God for another day, for another round. And we need that. But we're never going to get that if we don't think we need that. So you may be somebody who says, I don't even know what this Christianity stuff's about. And you need to hear from me. God is inviting you to come to quench the thirst of your soul. And you may be someone who's been following God for 50 years and he is saying, you need to come because I have more for you than you can even imagine after 50 years of walking with me. So I hope that you'll see that the invitations in this passage are for every single one of us. 
There's something here for you today. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at your beautiful, revealed word, in particular, words meant for us to live in last days, Lord, may we have eyes to see what you want us to see. May we understand and comprehend what you want us to comprehend so that we might act in full knowledge, or at least full enough to act as if we believe what you've made clear to us. Give us courage to act humility to learn and receive what you have for us today. And then may we not only go live it out, but lead others to live it out alongside of us. Help me as I try to shine a light on what you've said and get out of the way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to start in verse 10 and we're going to finish it out. Remember, John is writing what is being revealed to him by God himself. So it's like a vision. I don't know if he's awake. I don't know if he's asleep. He's certainly interacting. And, and he starts in verse 10, and, and, and this is what is said. Actually, what I, what I want to do is I want to read through it all in one, re, one read, and then I'll start in verse 10. So then he, okay, so go back to verse 6, the angel is who he is. Then the angel told me, that's John, Then the angel told John, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this scroll because the time is near. That's a key phrase. Let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right and let the holy person continue to be holy. Look, I am coming soon. I is Jesus. My reward is with me and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll, if anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. All right, let's jump in. Then he told me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the scroll because the time is near. 
This is referring back to Daniel 12. Remember, the book of Revelation has really nothing original in it. It's always referring back to something previously written in Scripture already, which is why we can look at things that look strange on the surface and go, oh, I think I can pick up what he means by going back and studying where it came from. Symbolisms, just Old Testament references, prophecies and the such and the like. Don't seal up the scrolls. In Daniel 12, the Lord told Daniel as he was talking about these very same things, don't write this down because the time is not here. It's not time yet. Well, what did he just say? The time is near. It is now time to reveal what has been hidden. Okay. Paul's already said that in reference to the church. Well, now it's being said here in reference to the end times. Okay. So don't seal it up, reveal it. Okay. And we said that last week, we said there's like seven invitations through all of this. We're not going to call out all of those, but two of them last week were obey the word and worship God. And obey the word is, you got to know what it is to obey it, right? And so John is writing it down so that we can hear it, reveal it, understand it, comprehend it, and obey it. So that's it. The time is near. We talked about this. It bears repeating. Jesus says the time, John is saying that he's been revealed to him. The time is near. Now, what is he referring to? He's referring to the end of days. He's returning to the amount of time until Jesus returns. Jesus came once. The first coming was the first advent, which is Christmas. The second coming is the second advent, and that hasn't happened yet. At least nobody told me if it did, okay? So, and if we're here, I'm hoping that means that he hasn't come yet, right? He has not come yet, and we think that will happen after seven years of tribulation, whether that's literal or physical, or literal seven years, or whether that's a figurative. It doesn't change the reality that he's coming again, and when he does, he will finish the wars, and he will finish the judgments. He's coming back. He's going to do what he said he did, he's going to do, just like he has all the way through. What's important for us to realize is that when he says the time is near, we need to avoid the temptation to be skeptical about this. Because, right, I mean, he said this in AD 96. It's been a few years ago, and it's real easy for us to go, well, so much for being near, and you live as if he may not come back in our lifetime. So how do we prepare the next generation for after we're gone? How do we pass the baton so that if he does wait a thousand more years to come, that the gospel is not lost, but we guard the gospel? This is Paul's words to Timothy, guard the gospel. He's not saying hide it in a box. He's not saying take all the Bibles and hide them. He's saying hide them in our hearts and in our minds so that we understand and we pass on the fruit of the word, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so let, let's keep that in mind when he talks about the time is near. And the only other thing about this is you and I aren't promised tomorrow. So while Jesus may not be coming back, we may be meeting him really soon, face to face. And so for us, the time could be near and we don't know. We don't know when that could happen. So there, that's important for us to think about. Now he finishes, verse 11 is actually a verse of four commands that don't sound like commands. And there's a little debate over what these mean, okay? So I'm going to give you a couple of thoughts to to chew on. Verse 11, let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. So the command is let people do what they want to do. Okay, so that doesn't, that's like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound, that sounds questionable. Let's just put it that way. So on one hand, some people would say that people are going to get to a place where it's too late to change. And that's true. 
there's come, God's patience is long-suffering, but at some point, we're going to get to a place where we're going to realize, oh, I should have believed, and it's going to be like, well, that time an opportunity has passed, the judgment has begun. So it could be that God's just saying, let it play out. Or it could be that the command is to let people do what they're going to do and say this as a warning. You're going to get what the fruit of your life is going to bear unless you change. Because he's going to tell us how we change here in verses 12. In verse 12, wash your robes. Okay? So I don't know. It doesn't matter to me how you take this. At the end of the day, the takeaway is the same. This should sober you and you should recognize God is giving me another chance to let him change my heart because I certainly can't do it. I need him to do that work. Otherwise, I'm taking credit, right? And I can't take credit for my salvation. He's the one who makes it possible for me to, he's the one who draws me. He's the one who opens my eyes. He's the one that gives me the faith and then the courage to exercise that faith. Yes, I have to exercise the faith. That's my role. He gives me faith. What do I do with it? That's the rub. That's where it comes down. What do I do with the faith he's given me? Okay. And that's, that's where he's challenging us with those words, I think. Now, verse 12, Jesus starts speaking. I love it when Jesus speaks. Okay, it's not just because the letters are read in my Bible. I like it because he always says things that challenge and comfort. He says this. Look at me, look at me. Well, he says, look. But it worked, right? He's saying, pay attention to this. Don't miss this. Look at this. I am coming soon. Okay, now I don't know that it's intentional, but I am is a pretty significant statement in the Bible. If I remember right, God says when Moses says, who should I say is sending me? He says, tell him I am sent you. That's an odd name. It's an odd way for God to address himself. And yet, what does it mean? It means that I'm never was and I'm never going to be. I am. And that never changes. That's big, right? Because all of us have history and all of us have future, wherever it's going to be. We're going to spend forever somewhere, but he is always now. Because why? He's outside of time. He's got time there, and he kind of plays with it like a little toy. Oh, look at that cute time. <laughs> I'm so outside of that. That's, he's so big. No wonder we should be worshiping him. Look, I am, so it's significant when it says coming, and we could put again in parentheses because he's already come once. We're gonna, in a few months, we're going to be doing Christmas again. It's crazy. But why do we celebrate Christmas? Because he came. God put on flesh and became human because we weren't getting it. Clueless, over the head. He's like, okay, I guess I need to send Jesus down there because nothing else seems to be getting through to him. And when it got through and we weren't happy about it and we took him to the cross, thank you very much. I am coming soon. There's that tension again, that tension. If you go to Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus talks about end times there too. And he talks about it as if there's these two extremes. There's this, um, I could come back any moment. And then you go the other way and it's, yeah, but I could take my time too. There's things that need to happen. And he talks about wars and rumors of wars and famines and false messiahs and every nation needs to hear before I come. All of those things take time, right? All of those things are processes. Even when he talks about some of his kingdom parables, he says, the kingdom of God is like a seed, like the smallest seed in Middle East, mustard seed. And you put it in the ground and then you what? wait for it to grow. It takes time. It grows into this big bush tree thing. It takes time. So I could come back any moment, 
but I also could take my time in your eyes. But I'm never early and I am never late. I am always, what is it? I always arrive when I intend to. I think that's a, a line out of The Hobbit. But anyway, um, that sounds like something Bilbo would say. Okay, so um, he says, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. He's bringing rewards, okay? I like to say whenever we're, someone's born again, there's a birthday party happening, okay? And God brings us gifts, spiritual gifts. He brings us a fruit basket full of spiritual fruit, and he moves in, pitches his tent in our hearts, and he says, I'm going to stay right here until we finish what I started in you. And we'll take you home, and you're going to love home because I'm making a special place for you. And so it's, it's, a, it's a birthday party when we get that second birth. Um, he, but he's going to bring rewards. And the rewards come from when you and I do things that build the kingdom or exalt the king. You realize that we can earn rewards, right? And I think we, we do one of two extremes here too. We either talk about nothing but the rewards and you get something warped like a prosperity gospel, or we are so afraid to talk about that that we might go there that we don't talk about rewards at all as if they don't matter. Folks, there's rewards that's talked about in the Bible, and it's based on what we do with what he's given us. So it matters what you do with what he's given you. And I'm not just talking about your money. I'm talking about your time. I'm talking about your relationships, the currency of relationships, what are you doing with your, your, your physical body? Are you, are you stewarding that well? What about your story? Are you sharing that? God gives us time, talents, treasure, testimony, and temple, your body. He gives us all of these things to steward. And he wants us to do that, and he rewards us. Now, you might say, well, isn't heaven going to be so awesome that rewards won't really matter? Yeah, that's, that's right. That's fair. I've heard it said this way. We're all going to have a full cup. Our cup of God's blessing is going to be full to the top. But some cups are going to be bigger than others. Okay, I'm not complaining. I'll take the smallest thimble. That's fine with me. Just let me go. But if you could make it bigger, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you live to please God now instead of waiting, right? Why would we do that? Well, if we're selfish and living for ourselves, we're going to naturally do that. Let's not do that. Then he says this, I will give to each person, don't miss this, according to what they have done. This applies to rewards and it also applies to penalties or punishments or disciplines. We are responsible for how we respond to God. We are accountable for what we do with Jesus. That may be the question he asks us when we stand before him. What'd you do with my son? I sent him. It cost him his life. It cost him suffering and, and all the pain and emotionally, physically, spiritually, all of it. Separation from me for the only time in all of eternity. What'd you do with my son? I don't know that I really want to answer that question for anybody, including myself. But that he could ask and it would be totally legit because I'm responsible for how I respond to him. Own it. Take responsibility for your faith. Teenagers, you can't ride your parents' faith You've got to make it yours at some point. You've got to decide, do I believe this? So that when you get in those tempting situations and this is on the line, you will already have made your answer in your mind. You will already know where you are. It's going to be tested. You're going to doubt. Welcome to the club. Okay? I'm a recovering, recovering doubter. Okay? It's part of it. Then he gives us this... Oh, and he says that... Okay, and then he comes to Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He says, I am 
The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the, f- the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, this sounds like he's saying the same, way, same thing three times, and maybe that's all he's saying. I do think it might be saying a little more. Beginning and the end use a different word. In, I don't know if you know, the New Testament's written originally in, in the Greek language, and sometimes the things are lost in the interpretation. The word beginning is arche, it may be how you say it, like, it looks like arch with an E on the end. And it means, it doesn't just mean beginning, it also means uh, source or pattern for. Okay? And then end is telos, or T-E-L-O-S, telos, I guess, and it means not just the end, but the destiny or purpose of that series. So you have, you have Jesus saying, I am the, I'm not only the beginning of this, of this life that I've called you to, and I'm not only the end of this life that I've called you to, but I'm the source and the pattern of who you're com- becoming, and I am the destiny, uh, the destiny and purpose of that is for you to be like me. Okay? That's what we mean when we want to be like Christ. We want to be Christ-like. Christian actually means little Christ. Be a little Jesus, okay? And that's what we're called to do and be. So when he says that, he's reminding us that that is connected to who, not only who we are, but who he is. This is why identity matters so much in the Bible. Because from our identity flows what we do with life. What do I get to do? I get to be like Jesus. Verse 14, blessed are those who wash their robes Never heard anybody say, blessed for those who do laundry. All right, but this is spiritual laundry, okay? Remember symbolism here, okay? Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right, privilege, right, to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. That's referring to the new Jerusalem that's already been talked about in detail in previous chapter, earlier in this chapter and in chapter 21. The new Jerusalem. So remember we have the current heaven, the current earth, the current Jerusalem, all going to be remade into perfectly refreshed, restored versions of what they are. And and they might not even look the same. They're going to look so much better. They're going to be so much more awesome. And they're going to be tangible, just as more real than this world is right here. Okay, no cloud life, okay? Sorry if you were looking forward to sitting on a cloud forever. Not gonna happen. Might be comfortable, but boring, come on. God's got something way better than anything you can imagine, much less find in this world, okay? So he says, this is this last of seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Now, this, what are we washing our robes of? Okay, so the idea is this. You and I, because of the fall, and because of our sinful attitudes, actions, and behaviors, and beliefs, we have spiritual garments that are soiled. Okay? Imagine the most disgusting garment, the most disgusting things you could do to a garment and then wear. Okay? Drag it through the mud, drag it through the sewer treatment plant mud, um, you know, jump up and down on it, have, have um, animals leave deposits on it, do whatever you want to do to trash it. That's what we wear spiritually. In God's eyes, that's what we come. If we try to get to God on our own, that's, the, that's what we're dressed in. He's not going to accept that. He's holy. That's unacceptable. That's not going to get you anywhere close to him. But he makes it possible for us to do our laundry spiritually, okay? Now, this is going to sound a little strange, but you don't use Tide to wash this robe of righteousness. You use blood, which sounds really strange, right? But there's power in this blood to get out the stain of sin, 
And it's not just anybody's blood. It's the blood of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And when he shed that blood, he released power into the world to spiritually make it possible for us to be reconciled to God by grace through faith. It made it possible. And that's what he's talking about. And that's why we can come away wearing white robes of righteousness, symbolically. He refers to it earlier when he's talking about um, the martyrs of the faith in, earlier in Revelation. White robes represent purity. It means that God has made us pure so that we can then approach him and be with him forever. He will not allow sin in his presence. That's inconsistent with his character to, to even allow that to happen for forever. He's allowing it to happen for a time because he's doing something through that. He's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Okay? And if you're in Christ, that's you. And part of that is not only saying, I'm declaring you right with me, white robe, but I'm also teaching you how to walk in that way because of your new identity as my son or daughter, son or daughter of the king. Priest, which means I go to God on behalf of people and I go to people on behalf of God. Holy priest. Okay, see it? So he says, blessed are those who wash the robes. Now what's the opposite of being blessed? Cursed, okay? You, does there sound like any middle ground to you? Me either. God makes it very clear because he wants you to hear his invitation and he wants the answer to be very easy and obvious but he's not going to make the decision for you and he's not going to ram it down your throat because he's a gentleman and he believes that love that is given freely is the love that matters. Okay? But he's doing everything in his power to make it possible. Okay? So then he gives us this contrast in verse 15. Outside are the dogs. Now, this is not talking about dogs like your dogs. Okay? And remember, poodles are mutants. That's a different category. All right. These dogs, this is talking about the way people looked at dogs. Did I, I didn't mean to lose you. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. I'm, I don't even want to know who owns poodles anymore now. So sorry. Outside are the dogs. Now, in Jesus' day, or in the day when this was written, dogs were not generally pets. I'm not saying they couldn't have been. I'm not saying they were, none of them were, but they were generally scavengers. And they were not wanted around. And they were smelly and stinky, and they would roll in their own stink, and they don't know how to wash themselves. Now, sidebar, you cat lovers, I'm not saying that it's really impressive that you, cats can bathe themselves. I am not saying that. I mean, after all, who wants to lick themselves clean, really, okay? So I'm not saying that. I'm saying, though, that dogs are always nasty unless somebody washes them for them. So he uses this term to describe those who are outside the walls, okay? In other words, what is the city? What did we say the new Jerusalem represented? It represents the temple that is God, his presence. So if you're outside of that, you're outside of his presence. That's what hell really is. It's totally cut off from the presence of God. And even if there's someone, let's say there's someone that's listening or watching or in the room that's an atheist, okay? Even if you're an atheist and you believe there is no God, okay? you're still benefiting from the blessings of God, even though you don't believe that he exists and there are no blessings. If the sun shines, it shines on the just and the unjust, right? If we need rain and it rains, it rains on the just and the unjust. Common grace exists in our world, right? But he sends specific grace, special grace, to make it possible for us 
to respond to him beyond just, oh, there's a good God somewhere because it rained today and we needed rain. It's so much more than that, right? But there are folks in our world, and I would say the majority of folks in our world, this will be true for. Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Few will find that door, that narrow way, that will not receive this blessing. They will be the equivalent of spiritual dogs. And listen to how he describes them. This is Jesus talking. You say, Jesus is nice and sweet, meek and mild. I don't know about that when I read verse 15. Outside are the dogs. Those, you could say those people who practice, listen to the list, magic arts, okay? Now, we all go, oh, prob- no problem. No magic arts in my life. The, the Greek word is the word we get pharmacy from. What do you buy at the pharmacy? And the nice way of saying is medicine. You can also say you buy drugs, okay? And a lot of idolatry and, and occultic worship requires drugs, okay? So we have that, and, and so we have those who practice magic arts, which is anything of power outside of the kingdom of God is the kingdom of darkness anyway. And then you have sexually, the sexually immoral. Okay, this is everything from what you look at on your phone to what you participate in or to what you imagine happening in your mind when you're dreaming and, and fantasizing. All of those things are, are right there before God. He doesn't miss any of those. The murderers, we can go, oh, well, I haven't done that. Check a box. Yes. Well, if you've ever hated someone. Sorry, Jesus says, if you've hated your brother, it's like you've murdered them in the heart. I can think of times when I wanted to kill my brother. (laughs) And I am not exaggerating. Um, (laughs) Love you, bro. Okay, so there's that. And then idolaters. And what's an idolater? It's someone who takes something good and makes it something God. They take something good, instead of treating it like just something good, they treat it like a God. And they make it more than it should be. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Don't you love how God just throws lying in there and all these lists of horrendous things? And it's like, oh yeah, and lying is equally bad. And we're we like, like everybody in the room here lies. You're like, I can't believe you just said that on the internet. You say you don't lie? Caught you. All right, verse 16. Isn't that a nice dress? Oh, it's beautiful. Mm. White lies count. I, Jesus, now Jesus is making this personal. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. Did you know Jesus had a personal angel? I kind of go, oh, that's kind of cool. Hey, I need you to do something for me. Hey, watch this. You know, there's probably some of that going on too. Jesus had a little bit of southern boy in him. Now, because he was from south Israel, right? Judah, southern kingdom. Okay, I'm just saying There's a book written, and I have a personal place in my heart for this book because the title is my name, so I love it. So Darian is the name of the book. I pronounce it Darian, phonetically, Darian. And he is the name of the main character of the book by Roger Elwood or L something, E.L. Wood maybe. And the character is the guardian angel of Jesus. Can you imagine? I mean... Yet, you get to be the guardian of an angel of Jesus while he's on earth. Talk about outside your pay grade. Holy cow. Sorry, I didn't mean to say that. All right, so then he says this. I sent my angel to give you what? This testimony. What's the testimony? What I'm saying, not just here in these verses, but the whole book of Revelation and the whole story of Scripture, which Revelation is the exclamation to, exclamation point to. 
for the churches. Remember chapters 2 and 3 were written to challenge and encourage the church? For the churches. And then Jesus gives you more identities about who he is. I am the root. There sounds some more source language. And I am the offspring of David. If he's the root of David, that means he's the source. That means that David came into existence because of Jesus who is God. And then as the offspring of David, we see Jesus the man God who put on flesh. We see the beauty of the incarnation, which is what we celebrate in the first coming of Christ, which we call Christmas. And then he says the bright morning star. And this is what I've referred to, that uh, a lot of people will talk about the darkest part of the night is right before the dawn, and that there's a little star on the horizon, and that when you find that star, it's an encouraging reminder that there's more to come, that the end of the darkest part of the night has arrived, and it's going to be defeated by the sun as it comes back over the over the horizon. And Jesus is saying this to some of you right now. Some of you who feel like your life right now is the darkest it's ever been. Look for the light because it's there. The bright morning star is there on the horizon and you have to get your eyes off yourself. And and this is easier said than done. And even saying it and agreeing with it, it makes it, this is a, I need God to do this through me kind of action. And lift your eyes and keep your eyes on him. Okay? Uh, there's a, a guy I used to volunteer under. He was a youth pastor. He's, he's still at Bell Baptist Church in Tampa, Florida. But um, he was the youth pastor there forever, like Noah and then Victor. Okay? And he was the youth pastor. And, and Victor used to sign a lot of his letters, like, keep the sun in your eyes, S-O-N. Keep the sun in your eyes. I love that. And uh, he would, I think it, he would get it from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And, and that's kind of what, what I'm, I'm wanting to say to you here, okay? Now, that's a, that's a pleading with God thing. It's getting on your face before God and acknowledging he is the only one that can get you out of the hole. He may use people. He will use people if they will let him. But he is the only savior that exists. Then he says this. This is the invitation, right? What's the last book of the Bible about? What's the end of the Bible about? It's about an invitation. Verse 17 is the invitation. The spirit and the bride say come. And let the one who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Four different ways of saying come. The Holy Spirit speaks first. The church, which is the the collection of saints from all times. There's invitations from the Holy Spirit. That's God himself. There's an invitation from the church, the bride of Christ. We have the spirit of God. We have the the bride of Christ. And then it says, and let the one who hears say come. Ears, and maybe now, right now, you, you realize I need to respond to this invitation. And that may mean a lot of different things besides in addition to salvation. And then to let the one who wishes, that means that you're going to do what you want to do, right? We all do, let's wait, we know we do what we want to do. And we all know that we're going to be held responsible for what we're going to do. I hope we know that. And we all should know that God is going to hold us accountable for that. Well, how about saying yes when he says come? Why don't you just go? Just go. 
And then he gives us this warning and he wraps it up with saying this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. Warning, danger, Will Robinson, here it comes. If anyone adds anything to them, that is, well, let me read it. If anyone adds anything to them, the words of the prophecy of the scroll, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. Well, if you've been here with me, you know that that is not a good thing understatement of the world of the century and if anyone takes words away from the scroll of the prophecy God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in the scroll now basically what he's saying is I think more than just literally you know taking your eraser to your bible and erasing words or or taking your pen and inserting words it's more than that it's more it's more um, insidious than that it's using this to mislead people about knowing God and responding to the invitation. It's people who know enough about this to talk about it in such a way that they can mislead people, okay? Now, I know that it's possible to do that and not mean to do that, but most of the time that's not how it's happening. He's just saying, my professor used to say, in seminary he used to say when he would make a joke about he would say you know if you don't do this I'm going to give you you know I'm going to pronounce the Yiddish curse what's the Yiddish curse he's like may the fleas from a thousand camels infest your armpits well that sounds horrible you know until you read the the judgments in the Bible in the book of Revelation right listen God is like a tour guide taking us along the edge of the Grand Canyon. The tour guide is saying, follow me, and he leads you to the highest precipice. And he says, you can get down and look over the edge if you want. And your head starts to spin with dizziness. It's so far down. And he says, of course, if you just want to disregard my warnings about not getting too close to the edge and throwing yourself over, go right ahead. Now, why would he say that? Is it because he wants you to jump? No. He's saying that because he wants you to realize that his warning is needed, needs to be heeded. He wants to warn you of truth and consequences if you don't follow the truth and read the signs. Okay? And that's what God is doing in the book of Revelation. He's showing you future history and the reality of the judgments of God that come to those who reject God and say, I don't want God to be in my life. And God's going to like, I'm going to give you what you want, but you don't want that. And I'm trying to help you see that you don't want that. But I can't make you do that because I won't make you do that. I will lead you right up to the edge and I will warn you so that you can see it as clear as day in front of you. But if you choose to roll off that ledge, I'm not going to stick my hand out and stop you. Even though I want to. And even though I've done everything to prevent that. I will not take away your decision to reject me. And then he ends with this. He is testifies to these things. That would be Jesus. Says, quote, yes, I am coming soon, which we talked about the first time he said it. John's response, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You hear it? He's like, come on. We are ready. Come on. 
The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Boy, is that not a prayer to be prayed every day. Lord, we need your grace. We need your grace. It's an invitation to all of us. It's an invitation that we need to receive. And it's an invitation that we need to share. Most of us will receive the invitation and feel good about that. But Luke 10, 2 reminds us that we are praying for more people to enter the harvest, to share the invitation, to come and drink the only thing that will quench the thirst of your soul. Okay? And he chooses to use imperfect people like me and like you to share that message. So why would we do anything else with life? Why would we waste our time with trivial pursuits when we can be doing the great work? Let's pray. Lord, it's just amazingly humbling to speak your words to folks like this. People you've made in your image that you want to realize their full potential in Christ. Parents, children, teenagers, folks that have been in life for a long time, seasoned veterans of life, of pain, of suffering. And you give us everything we need to respond to this with wisdom and with compassion for not only those that we love the most, but those that we don't even know, including our enemies. And while you encourage us to join you in this great work, you do not force us. You give us the freedom to go do our own thing and miss out on the joy of being able to lead others to do this, to be quenched. Lord, I pray that would change. I pray that would change in me. I pray that would change in us and that people would know um, that God is at work here quenching the thirst of the soul in the people in our places where we live, work, and play that we would reorient the focus of our lives on that which matters most. We ask you to help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.